several years ago, uh, the New York Times ran an article, uh, unmarried pastor uh, seeking a job sees bias. Uh, it chronicled the lives of several uh, single evangelical pastors who struggled to uh, find employment. Uh, and it noted several reasons for this. Uh, and one of them was that churches often have unspoken expectations for the pastor's family members. Uh, so, for example, uh, expecting the pastor's wife to be uh, an unpaid employee who plays the piano for the church and runs the children's ministry, right? So, I mean, so that would obviously be an advantage for a married pastor, uh, right? So, so that's, uh, that's one, one reason noted. But the, the most reasons that it noted are uh, what it called, quote, irrational fears that a single pastor cannot counsel a mostly married flock, that he might sow turmoil by flirting with a church member, or that he might be gay. So those, those are the reasons they quoted for why churches were uh, afraid to hire a single pastor. And the, this article probably overplays the so-called bias a little bit, uh, little bit but uh, nevertheless, I think it points to a real discomfort uh, that there is with singleness uh, in churches. And uh, frequently, there's an assumption in churches that singles want to get married. Right? If you're single, you must want to get married. And then an expectation that if they have the opportunity that they will get married, and a presumption that if they don't get married before a reasonable age, that there is something deficient about them. Right? You guys have probably, some of you have probably experienced this. And uh, this unfortunate situation stems from an unbiblical view of singleness. Uh, and marriage, and it's a significant deviation, actually, from the way the church has historically treated these issues and treated singles. And so, this passage offers a much-needed corrective uh, in, here in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five to forty, where Paul teaches us that singleness is a blessing from God in which we can please the Lord. And the, the main three points that I want to highlight is verses twenty-five to twenty-eight. It talks about the principle of singleness, and verses twenty-nine to thirty-five about the rationale for singleness, and then verses thirty-six to forty about the exception to singleness. Right. So, principle, rationale, and exception. And Paul begins this passage with the phrase in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, which is a helpful marker to indicate a new topic because this is now the second time Paul's used this phrase. He said earlier in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. So, and then he proceeded to deal with the issue of sexual relations within marriage and about whether or not married Christians uh, get divorced so that they could avoid the temptation, uh, to a sexual temptation and have uh, practice this abstinence. And Paul's response on both counts was, uh, was no, that people who are married should give each other their conjugal rights, and that people who are married should stay married and not divorce. So, so in that section, when he said, now concerning such and such, he addressed that matter in that passage. And now he's turning to the issue of singles. And this is Paul says, betrothed, which literally means virgins, right? And it specifically refers to singles who are engaged, are basically have someone in their life that are uh, they're about to get married. And, uh, and remember that the Corinthians, just remember the Corinthian context, that they had an unbiblically, unbiblically low view of the body. So some of the Corinthians were saying that it doesn't matter what you do with your body, so do whatever you want with it. Go commit sexual immorality, that's fine. And the other part, other sex, really segment of the Corinthians believers were saying, well, since the body doesn't matter uh, at all, we shouldn't have anything to do with it. Don't have any sex. Don't even, don't even have sex in marriage. Get divorced so that you don't have to be tempted to it. So that's the kind of view that the Corinthians had. And it's 
seems from the context of this passage that some of the people in some of these factions in the Corinthian church were pressuring uh, people, singles who were engaged to not marry, saying, well, you're engaged. Well, you shouldn't marry because you, that, that you, then you're going to have to have these th- things to do with the body, have sexual relations. That's not good. It doesn't tend to spiritual things, so you should stay uh, betrothed. You should not marry. So they're applying those kind of pressures to them. And even, it seems, uh, from verse 28 and verse 30, 36, that they were calling it sinful to marry. If you're single, you're not married yet. You shouldn't marry because to do so is sinful. And so Paul seems here explicitly and forcefully and repeatedly denies that, saying that it is not sinful for a betrothed person to go through with the marriage. And so that's really the issue he's turning to when he says, now concerning the betrothed. He's addressing singles or engaged singles particular, particularly. And he continues in verse 25, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Right? So earlier in chapter 7, 12 to 13, Paul said, To the rest I say, parentheses, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Right? So the reason why Paul added that qualification, I, not the Lord, in that instance, was not to diminish the authoritativeness of his teaching by saying, oh, this is just my personal opinion, but to indicate that he wasn't relaying a direct teaching of the Lord Jesus as he was doing earlier when he was talking about how Christian couples should not divorce and that even if they do, that they should not remarry. Right? So he say in that case, he was relaying a direct teaching of the Lord, but on this case, he was not. So he says, I, not the Lord. Right? So he's kind of doing a similar thing here when he says uh, that it's, I don't have a command from the Lord. It's, I don't have a direct teaching from Jesus, but I do give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Right? This is not just a throwaway opinion. This is his judgment that the Corinthians asked for, his apostolic judgment, his judgment inspired by the Spirit. And he's saying, this is my judgment as someone who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And he's about to tell us what his judgment is. And and it's amazing how he puts that, right? So it's by the Lord's mercy that he's trustworthy, that he can say anything that's trustworthy to these people. It's because of the Lord's mercy, not because of his intrinsic merit or quality. Uh, it's, uh, so that's Paul, because of God's mercy, is trustworthy. Now he's going to give us his judgment in verses 26 to 27. Read that with me. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So this is where we find the principle of singleness for the betrothed. Those who are single should remain as they are. And it's really the counterpart uh, that mirrors what he said earlier, that those who are married should stay married. Now he's saying those who are single should stay single. And Paul offers a brief preview of his rationale for it when he says, in view of the present distress it is good for a person to remain as he is. So the word that's translated distress here literally means compulsion or a necessity. It's the exact same word that is translated in verse 37 of the same chapter as necessity, right? So when it says whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So that's the same word. So it refers to a situation that brings some kind of 
compelling you know, force to it. So a situation that we cannot escape, therefore with which we must cope because we can't leave it. So we might translate it the present exigencies or the current pressing situation. So because of the current pressing situation, those who are single should remain as they are. So, and the word present offers us another clue as to the intended meaning of the word distress. It's a distress, a necessity, a present situation that characterizes the present, uh, the time we're in now. Uh, and in verse 28, Paul says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that, right? The phrase worldly troubles is in the Greek literally the troubles of the flesh and refers to the anxieties and the stresses that married people experience by virtue of their fleshly and worldly existence here and now, right? So in light of these present pressing situations, in light of our present existence in the flesh in this world, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Or as the Bible commentator Leon Morris puts it, when high seas are raging, it is no time for changing ships. That's basically what Paul's saying. As Paul says later in verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. So there's no uh, reason then to make such a big deal of marriage or singleness as if those things determined our ability to serve God and follow him. Paul's principle is essentially the same as what he taught in the previous passage, namely that we can fulfill our Christian calling no matter what condition we're in, no matter what situation we're in. Whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether we're free or enslaved. So likewise here, Paul says in verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Because this present distress characterizes all the, the lives of all believers who live between two worlds. Because it characterizes this present passing world, we shouldn't uh, be so invested in, in these things. Uh, and now we could remain as we are. So that's the principle uh, that those who are not yet married are to live by. It is good for a person to remain as he is. It's good to remain single. So on this point, Paul agrees with the Corinthians. Uh, But his uh, enforcement of it is different because he says it's not sinful to marry while the Corinthians are saying that it's sinful to marry. And Paul's theological reason for this principle is different. But the principle that it's good to remain as they are is, is the same. And, but Paul's aware of the Corinthian tendency, as I mentioned, to, to really codify this principle, this general rule into a law that everybody has to observe. So Paul adds a sharp qualification in verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. While it is good for a single man or woman to remain single, it is decidedly not sinful for him or her to marry. Then Paul adds uh, the reason why he is really encouraging singleness and that he says it's to spare them of the worldly troubles that attend marriage. And that serves really as the transition to verses 29 to 35 where Paul offers us the rationale for singleness. So let's turn to that. He says in verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. 
That's helpful, right? So if what he said up to this point has been confusing to you, Paul's about to explain it to us. This is what I mean, brothers. Verses 25, 28. In view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain in his. That's what he's explaining now. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. What does that mean? That's what he's explaining now. And this is his rationale. The appointed time has grown very short. The appointed time uh, refers to the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. And Paul's saying that the appointed time is imminent. Right? Paul also speaks of this in Acts 17, 30-31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the end of the world as we know it is imminent, not in the sense that the hourglass is about to run out of sand necessarily, but in the sense that the hourglass has been turned over and that the clock is ticking. Our life here, we're on the clock now. The appointed time is impending and it's making unavoidable progress toward its fulfillment. It's, if you think about it this way, it's impending in a similar way that our death is impending. I mean, our death is imminent, Right? Sorry to break it to you, but the, the death, not in the sense that you're about to die tomorrow or next week, but that death is surely coming. And in light of the context of history and about, the, about our life, it's really, really short. Time is short and our death is coming and we have to live in light of it. And that's what Paul is telling us here, that it's, it's, it's fast approaching. The finish line is now visible. The end is in sight because the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ has signaled, has marked, has fixed the end of the age. It's the beginning of the end of the age. And because of that, Paul says, the appointed time has grown very short. And then in verses 30 to 31, Paul offers as a series of examples that illustrate the the application of this principle. Read with me. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I just noticed the, the light uh, flickering, but I don't want you guys just ignore it. You think of it as the, it's nearing the end of the age, and this is what this passage is all about. And uh, now, as, uh, as in the, this principle, so he's illustrating, so we, it'd be a mistake if we took these illustrations that he gave us here and applied it literally, uh, because that would, be, uh, uh, that, that would mean that husbands who have wives should ignore their wives, neglect them, and live like their wives don't exist, right? Uh, that would mean that you're really sad and you're mourning and then you act like you're not sad, you're not mourning, right? I mean, that's, that's not what Paul is saying. He's, he's not saying when you own things, you purchase, don't act like you don't have them, live, don't use them. That's not what Paul is saying. These illustrations are here to demonstrate a principle, to demonstrate a point, that he wants to make. Because, in fact, if you applied it literally, it would directly contradict what he just said. He said, let those, it's when he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none, right? If that would directly, if we did that literally, that would directly contradict what he said in the preceding passage when he gave, told husbands and wives to give each other their conjugal rights. And not only that, he says in the, in the following uh, 
section that the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. That's how a married man should be, to anxious to please his wife. And so Paul's not saying live as if you don't have uh, your spouses. It's not supposed to be pressed into literal detail, but rather the principle that he's asserting is this. Since Christians have been time-stamped with eternity, we should not accord ultimate significance to worldly things that have expiration dates on them. Marriage has an expiration date on it. So don't act as if that marriage is what defines you and gives you ultimate significance and meaning. Live as if that's from the, that, that ultimate significance comes from the Lord alone. Like it's, uh, you would, if you knew that you had one year left to live because you have terminal cancer, I mean, you would undoubtedly live differently. Right? The Christians who have seen the last day live with clarity. We live today with urgency. Right? We're to live this day in light of that day. That's what Paul is trying to teach us. That doesn't mean we seek to escape the world or detach ourselves from the world. We still marry, we still mourn, we still rejoice, we still buy things, and we still deal with the world like the rest of humanity. But we must not give ultimate significance to these things. We deal with the world, but we're not defined by it. As people who are in the world, but not of it. We live with awareness of the present distress, the present exigencies that characterize life between two worlds. So that means whether we are circumcised or uncircumcised, whether free or enslaved, whether we are single or married, we are to remain as we are and live as if we are not. That means if you're married, you shouldn't look to your husband or wife for your ultimate sense of self-worth and fulfillment. That means if you're single, you shouldn't be desperate for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife as if he or she can be your savior and imbue your life with meaning and significance. If we look to men for such fulfillment, we will invariably be disappointed. We are people who are defined by our heavenward call, not by our earthly circumstances. Only God can provide ultimate meaning. Only God can provide eternal security. And that's Paul's rationale for why singles should remain singles. For the present form of this world is passing away. And then in verses 30 to 34, he provides a little more detail. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Right. So Paul's not here speaking about sinful anxiety because he's saying that the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So that's not sinful. It's the, what, the way it should be. It's a good thing to be anxious about the things of the Lord than wanting to please him. So he's not talking about sinful anxiety, but a proper concern that we ought to have with things with which, uh, regarding which we will be accountable to God. And the truth of the matter is the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
if you are married and you're not anxious about how to please your wife or please your husband, then you're not living in marriage as you should be. But you should be anxious about those things. So, so, it, so, and this is the reality. For this reason, Paul wants those who can remain single to do so in order that they may be free from these particular anxieties that attend to marriage. Uh, and here, notice that Paul separately addresses the unmarried and the betrothed. So that confirms our earlier interpretation from the preceding passage, that the unmarried people refer to demarried people. So people who are now single but who are once married. And the betrothed are people who are who were never married. So they're, they've been their virgins. Uh, and so, so he's addressing both here. And in view of the present distress, uh, the things of this world can easily entangle us. And when we get married, these worldly troubles are compounded because now not only are we anxious to please the Lord, we must also be anxious about worldly things, how to please our respective spouses. When we marry, even if it's to a fellow believer, our interests are in a real way divided. So that's why Paul writes in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. But in contrast to the Corinthians, Paul's not willing to elevate this general principle into law. So he adds that he's saying this for their benefit, not to lay any restraint upon them. Right? The phrase, uh, lay any restraint, uh, is a translation of a metaphorical expression uh, that literally means to throw a noose upon someone's neck, to throw a noose upon. So Paul's saying that his principle of singleness is for their benefit. It's not supposed to be interpreted legalistically as a noose around your neck. So don't feel like legally bound to it. Don't let it uh, be uh, something, it's not a requirement, it's something that's helpful. It's an advice that's salutary, it's not necessary. That's the principle of singleness. And I want you guys to really think about this for a minute because this is probably not how you have, you're used to thinking about marriage and singleness. Uh, it's definitely uh, countercultural. And so let it sink in because it's unusual. Because so, usually the way we think about it is you, it's, okay, it's okay to stay single. Uh, of course, you don't have to marry, but it's certainly better to marry. That's how we typically think about marriage and singleness, isn't it? But Paul teaches that while it's fine to marry, it's better to remain single. And his rationale for singleness is that it promotes undivided devotion to the Lord. And I want to speak to those of you who are single directly. Do you see your singleness in this biblical perspective? Scripture unequivocally affirms and commends singleness as a viable way of life that can bring glory to God. Do you see your singleness in this way? Later in verse 40, Paul says that a Christian widow who does not remarry but remains single is happier for it, right? Quote, the word happy means blessed or fortunate. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, they are more blessed who remain single, the widow that does not remarry. That means singleness is not a malady to be remedied, it is a blessing to be enjoyed for God's glory. Do you think of your singleness in that way? Although we didn't plan this, uh, I, did not, I do not have the foresight to plan it this far out in advance, but I think it's God's providential wisdom and wonderful sense of humor that this passage falls right after Valentine's Day, um, in the beginning of Lent, right? Some, some of you probably hate Valentine's Day because it's a perennial reminder of your unfulfilled longing for romance, romance and relationship and companionship. 
Maybe some of you are kind of masochistic and you browse through wedding blogs and scroll through other people's social media profiles to remind yourself of just how much other people's love life is better than yours. But remember that your singleness is a blessing. Don't turn marriage into an idol. If you feel distressed or depressed by your singleness, if you feel angry or bitter toward God because of your singleness or any situation or circumstance for that matter, then you have replaced God's vision of happiness, God's vision of blessedness with your own. Singleness is a blessing from God in which we can please the Lord. Don't buy the illusion of love and romance that our culture is selling you. Right? Your marriage is not all roses, and I say this even though I'm a happily married man. Hannah has been a tremendous source of blessing uh, in my life. And apart from Christ and his, his spirit, she is the single greatest gift that I have ever received from the Lord. And I cherish every day I get to spend with her. And this is all true. But I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that it's hard. Right. It takes work. It takes work every single day and it requires you to die to your own selfishness every single day. There are no days off in marriage. There were times earlier in our marriage I just broke down and wept because of how hard it was. Because I saw the depth of that sinfulness and selfishness and ugliness in my own heart exposed by my relationship to Hannah. And there are days when I still weep because of the ways in which I know I have hurt Hannah in my own sinfulness. It's not easy to be married. So if you are going to pursue marriage, it's not sin to pursue marriage, but do so with biblical clarity, knowing that living together with another sinner is not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. No human relationship is going to solve all of your woes. And know this also, that your marriage, if you get married, is going to divide your interests. When I'm counseling a church member over coffee or over the phone, and the conversation is going long, right? And I have to be mindful of the fact that the longer I am away, the longer Hannah will have to hold down the fort at home, and she's having a much more repetitive, exhausting, and less stimulating conversation with our kids. That's the reality. My interests are divided. When we were prayerfully considering, considering and deciding where to plant Trinity Cambridge Church, there were some neighborhoods that were out of the question right from the gate, right out of the gate, because I could not merely think about my calling to the Lord, but I had to think about how to care for my family and my kids. Thankfully, Hannah is a selfless and faithful woman, so there's much that we can do together in partnership, but there's no man or woman in the whole world whose interests are exactly identical to that of the Lord. And so when you get married, your interests will be divided. And when you're married, you have to be anxious about worldly things, how to please your spouse. If you're currently single and you're old enough to have some married friends, you probably have seen this already. You may have noticed that your friends kind of drop off the map when they get married. There's a reason for that. So if you're single, let me encourage you and to take advantage of your singleness. Harness it to serve God and his people. Even if you don't intend to be single for the rest of your life, you can glorify God in your singleness now. Because you're single in many ways, you can be more spontaneous and selfless than married people can ever hope to be. 
Are you using that for God's glory? Of course, that doesn't just happen naturally, right? God's not glorified by singleness in and of itself. You have to use singleness for God's glory because it's possible to be single and be completely selfish and undevoted to God. There's a lot of those people as well. So this is not something that's going to come to you naturally. But in your singleness, you have the potential to give yourself wholly and exclusively and entirely to God. Are you doing that? That's his rationale for singleness. But as I've said already, that Paul doesn't codify this into law, this principle of singleness. So he offers in this final section the exception to singleness. In verse 35, Paul said he was commending singleness to promote good order. But now in verse 36, he speaks of a situation where the exact opposite is happening. He says, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, the phrase not behaving properly in the Greek is is the negative form of this exact same word that was used in verse 35 translated promote good order. So Paul's telling us that even though he is commending singleness to promote good order, there are cases when singleness is, is actually not going to promote good order but tend to disorderliness and produce uh, improper behavior t- between singles. And so he says, uh, he, and that's what he is addressing here. He says, if his passions are strong, this is the exception. If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. If you have a strong desire to get married, so that you are convinced that you ought to get married, then, and so that it has to be, then scripture says, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. And note the phrase, let him do as he wishes. It's okay to follow through with your wish to marry. Getting married is not a sin. So while Paul agrees that singleness is preferable for the sake of singular devotion to God, for him it is not a matter of obedience or disobedience. It's no sin to marry. In fact, as we know from Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is also true. For those who have, but for those who have strong passions, marriage is its own blessing from God. While singleness is a great blessing from God, it's not for everyone. And if your passions are strong, then marriage may be the blessing that God intends for you. Recall what Paul said in verse 7 of the same chapter. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul was someone whose sexual passions were not strong and he had his desires under control. So when Paul insists that his celibacy is a gift, uh, he's saying that not all have this gift. When he says, I wish that all were as myself am, he's saying that not all are as he is. So the clear implication is that celibacy, the gift of celibacy is not common to all. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that God sovereignly distributes uh, many gifts, diverse gifts, to the varied members of the body for the sake of promoting interdependence within the body. So that means if someone has a gift of celibacy, and if you don't have the gift of celibacy, then you have another gift that God has given you to use for the body. And it is inadvisable and dangerous for someone who does not have the gift of celibacy to insist on that and to insist on such a standard for everybody. And so those who do not have the gift of celibacy have a gift of another kind. 
So this shows us that we shouldn't elevate singleness, you know, to a point where we put people who are single on a pedestal and then look down on married people. I mean, this is not as common in our context, but it has been common throughout church history, especially certain denominations, right, that insist that the pastor or priest has to be celibate, even if he does not have the gift of celibacy, right? We can't pressure or force people into the life of celibacy. And that's abundantly clear from verse 37. Look at it with me. Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Right? In at least four different ways, Paul emphasizes that remaining betrothed and not going through with the marriage has to be the free choice of the individual that's in view. Right? It has to be established in his heart, it says. He must be under no necessity, and it must spring from having his desire under control, and he has to have determined this in his heart. So if, if he has his desire under control, then he can choose to keep his fiancée a virgin by not going through with the marriage. And if he does this, Paul says, he will do well. Now, that's probably, you guys, some of you guys are probably breathing a sigh of relief. Like, okay, now I don't have to feel pressure to get, uh, stay single. Uh, Sean's not going to pressure me into breaking up with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Right? And I don't, uh, but I don't want you to dismiss all of Paul's teaching up to this point. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, because sometimes people mistakenly think that the gift of celibacy uh, means having no sexual desire, like being asexual, uh, but I don't think that's what it means. Uh, because it says, it talks about, you know, people who should marry, that passion, if their passions are strong, they should marry. But if they have their desire under control, that they should remain celibate, right? So the fact that people who are to remain celibate have their desires under control means that they have desires, it doesn't mean that you have no desire. It means that you have a moderate desire that you're able to keep under self-control. That's what it means to have the gift of celibacy. So that means if you have that gift, if you don't feel that you, it has to be, if you have your desires under control, then you should seriously consider singleness as a way of promoting singular devotion to God. And Paul sums it up this way in verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Marriage is good. To marry is not sin, and marriage too is a gift from God, but singleness is better, Paul says. Singleness is a blessing from God in which we can please the Lord. Then having addressed the betrothed singles who are engaged, Paul's mind returns once again to women who were formerly married but are now single, whom he had specifically addressed in verses 8 to 9. He says in verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So here Paul's reiterating Christ's teaching from Luke 16, 18 and elsewhere, that everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So remarriage while one's former spouse is alive constitutes adultery because while the marriage vows might be broken, the marriage bond cannot be broken because it was forged by God himself to be binding for life. But if her husband dies, he says, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord, right? So in the case of widows, 
marriage is an option on the table for in the same way it is for singles, and that's why Paul mentions them. And in this short sentence, uh, Paul offers two really helpful clues as to how eligible singles are supposed to pursue marriage. And this is really as close as scripture ever comes to offering tips for dating. So if you are single and you're interested in this, please uh, listen up carefully. First, Paul says this, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, right? Here's a biblical precedent for the idea that you should marry someone you love, right? someone you want to marry, right? And notice that Paul offers this prerogative to woman, which is radically progressive for its time, unheard of in the Roman Empire. And notice at this point, Paul had focused a lot of his injunctions on men because men were expected to take the initiative and to, take, to provide leadership when it comes to pursuing engagement in marriage. But this does not mean that the woman had no choice. She is to marry whom she wishes, in a now classic article entitled The Age of Roman Girls at Marriage, this was published in 1965 by a historical demographer named Keith Hopkins. He uh, noted that most Roman marriages involved prepubescent girls around the age of 12 or younger. And they were given away in marriage to much older men. That was common practice in the Roman Empire. But when he parsed out the Roman marriages uh, according to their religious affiliation, he found out that Christian women in the Roman Empire were three times as less likely to have married by the age of 13. Right? They, they had much more choice in the matter, and they married far later than people in the, Rome, the typical woman in the Roman Empire. And that's because of the unprecedented dignity that the church accorded to their women. And because of verses like this that specifically teach that women should marry whom they want. Many traditional cultures have arranged marriages, right, because they see marriage as essential and necessary for the upbuilding of society. But marriage is not essential or necessary for the Christian. So you should wait for someone you want to marry. That's the first tip. Then the second guideline is this, only in the Lord. This is really the only requirement that Paul gives us uh, for your potential spouse. He or she must be someone who shares your faith in and your commitment to the Lord. Note that it doesn't say only those whose bank accounts are full, only those who are sufficiently attractive, only those who are sufficiently educated. Paul says very simply, only in the Lord. Because marriage is to be a picture of the church's union with Christ. It will work as God intended it, only insofar as you follow in your marriage the pattern of Christ's self-giving love and the church's self-giving submission. It's impossible to do this when your spouse doesn't even believe that Christ gave himself for the church. So this criterion is critical. And think about this. If marriage to a Christian divides your interests, can you imagine what marriage to an unbeliever will do? If you follow Scripture's command and seek to marry only in the Lord, then there are uh, some more implications for your dating life as well. The Bible doesn't have a category for dating because until you're married, for all intents and purposes, you're single from a biblical point of view. And that means because you're not yet married, you need to treat your boyfriend or girlfriend as a Christian brother or sister. For example, 1 Timothy 5 verse 2 teaches us to treat older women in the church as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. 
And if that's the case, that means you shouldn't do anything to them or with them that you wouldn't do with your own brother or sister. They are to be safeguarded in all purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 8 teaches that transgressing sexual boundaries with other believers is equivalent to wronging or cheating a brother or sister. By depriving one another of God's good design for sex within marriage, we defraud, exploit, and cheat one another. So if there's biblical grounds for getting married because your passions are strong, then I think there's also biblical grounds for not delaying marriage because your passions are strong. If your passions are strong, don't let your wedding planning get in the way of your marriage. Get it done. Get married. Finally, having offered these guidelines for singles uh, and for seeking marriage, Paul returns once again to the main theme of this passage in verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul writes as a Spirit-inspired apostle that while marriage is a blessing, it is more blessed to remain single because singleness is a blessing from God in which we can please the Lord. In the Roman Empire, the widows faced tremendous pressure to remarry. In fact, well, because they had no recourse to survival apart from the income of their husbands in most cases. And for that reason, actually, uh, uh, this uh, Rodney Stark, uh, who is an American sociologist who's teaching at Baylor University, writes about this reality, that, that Christians, the way they treated widows was radically different. He says, should they be widowed? Christian women enjoyed very substantial advantages. Pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to remarry within two years. Of course, when a pagan widow did remarry, she lost all of her inheritance. It became the property of her new husband. In contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. Thus, not only were well-to-do Christian widows enabled to keep their husband's estate, the church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. Why has the church been so different throughout history in the way it treated singles? Because the Bible teaches that singleness is a blessing from God in which we can please the Lord. Many in our society view singles with suspicion, especially older singles. And in fact, there's now a term for this, I found out. Right? The social scientist Bella DePaolo coins the term singleism, right? in her book, Singled Out, and defines it as this, the stereotyping and stigmatizing and discrimination of people who are not married. But the church consistently and throughout history offered a more positive and sensible view of singleness. And it has made the sacrifices necessary to sustain singles in their singlehood. We need to recover that ideal once again in our generation. I know that this is difficult to accept uh, for a lot of you. Um, it's so countercultural and counterintuitive, and you will neither believe this nor live by it unless you make sense of it in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason, because the reason why marriage has such an enduring appeal for so many of us is because it is a picture of an ultimate reality of the church's eternal union with Christ, union with God. So throughout scripture, our Lord Jesus Christ is described as the bridegroom that comes to claim her bride, which is us, the church. Right? Ephesians 5, 25 to 20 described Christ as the husband who, who sanctified the church to set her apart for himself to be presented to him as a bride. 
Jesus is the Prince of Peace who slew the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and to rescue the church as a bride for himself. It's the ultimate fairy tale. He's the prince who killed the dragon to get the girl, to get the church to claim the bride for himself. And he did this by dying on the cross for our sins, thereby shattering the chains of sin that held us enslaved to the dragon. Then he emerged from the grave victoriously, and he is now preparing his bride for that great wedding day when our union with Christ will be consummated. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why marriage is so glorious, because it's supposed to be a picture of that reality. But here's why this should fill those of you who are single with hope. Marriage is a picture of the ultimate reality. It's not the ultimate reality itself. It's a shadow of what is to come. Jesus teaches in Matthew 22 to 30, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven because in heaven, the eternal spiritual reality that marriage pointed to will be consummated. So you no longer need a picture of Christ's love when you come to face, come face to faith with Christ himself. And because humanity was created for this ultimate relationship with God, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ and you are seeking a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife to alleviate your loneliness and satisfy your longing for love and companionship, then you're putting an eternal weight on a temporal reality and your expectations will crumble under the pressure. Turn to Christ today and you will experience a foretaste today of that eternal union with God. And if you are already a follower of Christ and you are single, then you are to skip the picture, so to speak, to be devoted to God entirely and exclusively as we will be in heaven. You are to find companionship and support, not in forming a biological family, but in your spiritual family, the church. You're to focus on propagating spiritual children of God through through the proclamation of the gospel rather than focusing on propagating biological children through sexual intercourse. You are to be a daily reminder to all those around you that what gives you true eternal significance is not a man and it's not a woman, but your relationship with God. You are to show by your singleness that the greatest love in the world is not the love between a man and a woman, but God's love for his people. I know that some of you have strong passions and you deeply desire to get married and you have not been able to, some of you. But your loneliness might be unbearable at times and you might be overwhelmed by a sense of insecurity and self-doubt that comes with that. But remember this truth. You will have yourself a wedding day in the end. You will have yourself a bridegroom in the end and he is an incomparable and peerless bride. Bridegroom. Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Even if you never get to have your dream wedding, that wedding day will be more beautiful than anything you could have imagined. Even if you never find a man or a woman to have and to hold, Christ will be to you a more beautiful, more lovely, more faithful and true bridegroom than you could have ever hoped for. 
In 1 Samuel 1, when Hannah is despondent because she is barren and she's crying, and Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let me ask you, is not Christ more to you than a husband? Is not Christ more to you than a wife? Is not Christ more to you than the thousands, chiefest among thousands? Is not Christ more to you than the whole world over? Let your singleness of devotion to God be so apparent, whether you're married or single, that the answer to that question is obvious to everybody who knows you and sees you. Let's pray together. God, this is a lofty calling to be wholly devoted to you. We cannot do it apart from the help of your spirit. We cannot do it apart from the love that you revealed in your son, Jesus Christ. The way in which you loved us first, died for us, gave yourself for us. Define us with that love. Ground us in that love so that we can live in singular devotion to you as your lover, as your bride, as the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.